Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a sage publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today, our guest is Mr. Tej Patel, Vice President and CIO at Stevens Institute of Technology. So I'm really thrilled to welcome someone who is from my industry, academia, and I can't wait to learn more about his thoughts and perspectives on how you secure academic institutions from different types of attacks. Our discussion will revolve around unique security challenges, CIO-CISO relationships, preparing for cyber attacks, effective execution strategies. So we will be covering a lot of ground, and I hope you find it interesting. But before we get into the details, let's bring our guest into the discussion. So welcome, Tej. Thanks again for making time. Dave, pleasure to be here. So, Tej, uh, why don't you give listeners an overview of your professional background? Absolutely, Dave. And again, it's my pleasure to be here and uh, look forward to sharing some of the thoughts around this very important topic in, in all industry, in fact. So a little bit about me. I have been in higher education for almost 20 years now. My first job was in higher education, and I'm still in higher education. I, Prior to joining my current organization, I was at University of Pennsylvania, where I have held several roles, most, most recently Chief Information Officer for, for Penn Nursing. And in August of 2020, I joined Stevens Institute of Technology as their Vice President for Information Technology and University CIO. I am responsible for end-to-end digital IT, cybersecurity, enterprise data and data services, classroom technology, and learning technology. Okay, fantastic. So let's begin by discussing the information security challenges that academic institutions face. Yeah, Dave, I think that's a great question. And before I I share challenges, I, I must tell you that cybersecurity is a moving target in higher education, right? And I, as I tell my team and my constituencies that it's a team sport where it's a shared response. Cybersecurity is a shared responsibility to promote a protected cyber infrastructure on campus, right? And some of the challenges are unique to, to higher education, but I think there are a lot of similarities as well when we look at banking, financial institutions, or, or pharmaceuticals, or healthcare, and what have you, Right. There are specific areas within higher education, I believe, that that are are very challenging to to manage and maintain and meet the expectation. For example, research, particularly research IP, when 
a researcher is, is, is doing or conducting a research that deals with a treatment or DOD or confidential data, Department of Defense, it's a very unique environment at that point. Then you have students' data that is also a very high target. Libraries, right, where open research, it's the motto, right? The network is open in, in some of those areas where it creates a very unique challenges where you want to find a perfect balance between security and, and allowing and learning and teaching to take place for, for our, our students, right? Classroom instructions nowadays, right? Particularly throughout the pandemic and the journeys that, that we all went through, how do we secure that kind of hybrid environment where we live in an increasingly interconnected world, right? So these are some of the unique challenges that we have from a business perspective that I find it extremely challenging to manage and make sure that we are able to find a perfect balance where we are not hindering the progress of, of faculties and students. So those are a few, few things come in mind. That makes a lot of sense. In fact, as you were articulating the challenges, I was reflecting on my experiences and expectations as an academic. We faculty members would like to operate in a very autonomous and open kind of an environment, an environment that would enable the pursuit of research and teaching as freely and independently as possible. However, as you rightly pointed out, there is a lot of sensitive data that needs to be carefully managed, protected. We're talking about intellectual property, student data, library resources, and more. So the challenge lies in enabling the university pursue its mission as safely and securely as possible. Is that a fair understanding of the fundamental challenge? It's more about understanding a researcher's needs versus wants, Dave. I think that's where we draw the line. But more importantly, building that trust and relationship, that is so critical. That allows my team and myself to, to have a conversation with our researchers to fully understand what exactly are they trying to achieve. And once we understand their needs and requirements, we are able to create custom solutions that allow them to flourish and, and, and produce the amount of work that, that they're committed to, to do. But we also take this opportunity to educate them as well. So it's a learning on both sides, right? And I think that's the most important thing that we all need to understand that it begin, we need to have a dialogue where both parties are able to understand. Like right before this call, you mentioned, make sure if I use any acronyms, I spell it out, right? And this goes same for a lot of our faculty members who are tremendous researchers. They are 10x knowledgeable compared to some of us in our team. But there is that's their expertise, and we have our own expertise. The goal is to how do we bring both expertise together to meet that digital ambition for that particular individual faculty? And when that happens, a lot of great solutions come to life, right? Where most recently we partnered with one of the faculty where we were able to create a closed VLAN network where he was able to conduct his research. And our CISO was also happy that this, this partnership took place because we also reduced the overall risk that is associated with this kind of setup. And 
a lot of time that then we get docu we document all of this in our exception processes and everyone was it, it was a win-win for both where the researchers were allowed to conduct their research the security folks and the network folks said that providing this environment in the most secure possible way that we could and and this is the type of partnership that will require to address some of the challenges the there's one more thing I also wanted to mention around the challenges, right? There are two specific challenges that are, I believe, very unique to hire as, as well. Number one is having non-centralized security platform on campus, right? Because you know, the larger the organization, the larger the IT teams and the, and the, and the research that take place in a, in a localized area, right? And they all have independent systems. How do you bring them together, right? And the second one is, Majority of the, the universities are still dealing with outdated systems, whether it's desktop systems or server systems. And that also creates rather unique challenges to keep up with what's happening in the security. So so those are a few things that, that probably we need to pay very close attention to. Very true. In fact, when you talked about the, the importance of a collaborative relationship, it brought to mind a podcast that I just published today where the guest talks about transitioning to the cloud and how they were very successful because it was an all-hands-on-deck kind of an operation. Everybody was engaged. Mm -hmm. Everyone recognized that this organization, which was American Cancer Society, they couldn't lose any more money because money was needs to go to research and not be spent on oper IT operating costs. So they were doing their best to optimize operations. So that's an interesting story. But you know, essentially what he was trying to say is 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 similar to what you're saying is the importance of collaboration. That brings up the next question. You know, university setting, different schools, different departments doing so many different things. And you give us this example of helping a particular researcher set up a virtual LAN so they could securely you know, exchange information with their colleagues in other parts of the world. How do you keep up with all the activities that's going on across campus or at satellite locations, if you'll have satellite locations? What's the mechanism in place where you would be forewarned? People will feel the need to say, hey, we need to talk to the security office because this has some serious security implications and we want to make sure that we are doing doing it the right way. I think that's a that's a very good question, Dave, again. And there are some specific steps that we have taken to 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 gain that visibility campus wide, right? Whether it's it's one campus or multi multiple campus. The first and first most important thing is 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 having a solid cybersecurity program and governance that will guide us through some of those challenges that, that you describe in your question. For example, how are we partnering with procurement? Is our CISO and, 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 and CIO involved in some of the new contracts that are being reviewed or drafted? Are we following HackWet guidelines? Are we following certain steps to ensure that that privacy and and other standards are are being followed. So there are a lot of things that 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 we have 
change our practices to make sure that we we instill the culture of cybersecurity in our business from day one, right? So before even a software or a platform shows up on our campus, we have some visibility and IT and the and the security office are part of those conversations. That's number one. Number two is what happens once all these platforms and activities are taking on taking place on campus, right? It requires solid 24-7 monitoring, right? So we have partnered with, with external vendors. For example, we have 24-7 uh, a SOC center, a security operation centers, where we are we are monitoring and uh, detection and, and response uh, takes place in that area, right? We have developed risk profiles where we are able to look at university-wide between managed assets and non-managed assets. Where do we stand overall in terms of patch management, OS deployments, and all of that, right? And the last and the most important is, is network monitoring and partnership with our network ISP provider, right? How do we work with them to make sure that we have a good visibility throughout our entire network, whether it's wired or physical? And that's what allows us at a very high level to make sure that if we see some activities like Bitcoin mining or what have you that's taking place, we are able to stop the problem before it becomes a larger issue. So those are some of the steps we take very proactively on a daily basis. And, and then on a, on a weekly and bi-weekly basis, we have regular executive updates as well, where I get briefed on, on certain incidents that takes place, certain projects that are moving on, or just simply speaking, just, just review of some of the, the KPIs that we have built around uh, our, to improve our security posture. Makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned about creating a collaborative learning environment where your unit is learning about the researchers, about what they do, and they are learning about the role of information technology, information security personnel. So you are essentially feeding off each other's knowledge and expertise. And that's great. In that spirit, how feasible is it to provide every unit, every department with a customized do's and don'ts list? I would, for us at least, that journey starts as part of our onboarding process, particularly speaking, faculty orientation. There are very specific sessions geared towards data security and privacy, where we walk the, 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 the new boarding faculty members, the resources that they have available, how to partner with IT. And this goes back to your do's and don'ts, don'ts. Not, not going to go into a lot of details there, but at a very high level, we provide the data classification review right. and, and, and what that entails, right? High, medium, low risk and where and how they should partner with IT and the security to ensure that the data that they're acquiring or sharing uh, it meets some of those guidelines, followed by once they determine their high, medium uh, risk data, there are some specific guidelines that have been put together, whether it's related to cloud storage or servers or virtual servers or what have you. And that guides them through how to in, uh, make sure that this data and the systems remain secure. Furthermore, there are, there are specific instructions that we also provide because many of these faculty work with graduate students as well. And we have very specific 
guidelines for, for them as well. When we CISO meets with them actually on a regular basis to make sure that these guidelines are, are being followed. And the last one is we created a dotted reporting structure sort of where the local tier system administrator and researchers, they work very closely with our, our, our systems and infrastructure group where they have learned to share some of the details at a system level to make sure they're following the best practices, whether it's a zero trust framework or NIST framework that, that we are adopting and deploying some of the controls to make sure that university-wide we have a similar controls applied and, and, and configured. Okay, good to know, good to know. So let's talk a little bit about the CIO-CISO relationship. You know, you keep referring to we, 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 which sounds great, actually. It seems like you all are a very integrated, cohesive team. But what is your vision of an ideal CIO-CISO relationship? It, it's, a, it's a great question, and there's so much debate going on, right? Do you couple them? Do you decouple them? What's the, the, the reporting structure looks like and this and that, right? There, there are three main topics that a lot of folks talk about, right? One where CISO reports to CIO, one where CISO reports to the CEO or president. Or I, and I think the third one nowadays, the new one that I hear is the CISO reports to the CPO, the chief privacy officer, right? I think those are the three themes I have seen. But, but really, Dave, the way I look at it, it's not so much about reporting structures, it's more about how a CISO and, and CIO can partner together to deliver the message that cybersecurity or security is a strategic value service for any institution and organization, right? This, this is something that is beyond CIO and CISO relation. It's about instilling a culture of security at large in institution, right? How do we leverage and implement governance structure around security that allows us to bring together, work together, right? For me, uh, the CISO does report to me, but one of the major change that, that we instill is the CISO also has a dotted reporting into our audit and risk committee as well for full transparency and visibility. And that's the way I look at it, right? We don't want to control anything, but how do we bring information to life? How do we share some of these learnings, lesson learned, right? And how can we be transparent with the community and the board that what are some of the challenges, what are some of the things we are doing well, and what are some of the, the deltas that we need to constantly adopt and, and, and proactively address some of those, right? And, and the last and the most important, which I also pointed out earlier, right, the role of CISO and CIO, in my view, is more towards reducing the business risk nowadays, right? It's all about risk management there. Right. It's not about technology. Cybersecurity, 10 years ago, it was all about bits and bytes. Right. But now, if you look at the CISO who understands bits and bytes, but also pays very close attention to figuring out the business risk and how to manage that business risk and works with CIO very closely as a peer, they are the one going to make sure that the, the institution or the organization remains safe. And, and they could provide the value add services that any organization will benefit from. So that's the way I look at that CIO CISO relationship in, in today's world. I couldn't agree with you more. That's a very holistic approach. It's a very pragmatic and practical approach. 
and as you said, one can always debate the different reporting relationships and each reporting approach has its pros and cons. There is no one perfect approach. Absolutely. But, but the extent to which you can strike that balance where there is independence, yet there is cohesion. You don't want to create a situation where the structure is such that you have a competing relationship where it becomes, you know, then then we have constant have conflicts and that's what you want to avoid because they have to address the different pieces of the puzzle. So they you know, each has a certain role to play. I have a couple of follow-ups for you. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you talked about transparency. I feel very strongly about it that the keeping the various stakeholders informed about where the organization is in terms of readiness, what are the possibilities without, you know, again, when you are transparent, you're you're mindful that any and everybody is not getting that information, but you don't want the stakeholders to be surprised that what happened. We never knew anything about this. Why didn't you brief us? So the fact that you mentioned about transparency and regular reporting to the board and to the other stakeholders, that is definitely very reassuring. You wanted to say something? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah, one of the examples I was going to, to share with, with you and this audience is, is there are ways to crop business cases together mm-hmm. that improve user experiences overall, right? And that's the strength that when you have CISO and CIO working together, one trying to bring that efficiency or tools or platforms versus one is making sure that the tools and the platforms that that we are we are adding to our ecosystem is being managed securely data is being protected and that's the type of environment uh, that that will be very successful in a, in the coming days yeah yeah true the other thing that i wanted to touch upon was culture in my book uh, that i published last year through sage publishing i talk about the importance of creating and sustaining a high performance information security culture. Commitment, preparedness, and discipline are the cornerstones of the proposed high-performance information security culture in my book. Each of these cultural dimensions, commitment, preparedness, and discipline, are associated with a set of success factors. I don't want to get into all the details of how to create and sustain such a security culture, because that's something that uh, one can pick up from reading the book. However, it would be valuable if you could share an example of how you and your team brought about a change in the security culture at your institution. I think that's uh, that's a very good question, and we could have a conversation about that probably for hours. But at a very high level, I will touch upon a little bit where I talked about Protect Stevens cybersecurity program. Part of that program, there are a few things that we 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 did that I'm very proud of. Number one uh, is we made certain tools available to our entire community at no cost, right? For example, our entire faculty staff student community enjoys LastPass and, and an antivirus that they're able to download at no cost because we wanted to make sure that no matter what environment they're working from, no matter what devices they're working from, it's safe. So for us, our approach starts from their home security, right? How do we make sure that that 
our users are fully aware of what's happening. So we wanted to make sure the tools are provided. That's number one. Second, we made sure that, that they were provided a periodic security awareness training, right? There were some gamifications and all of that. And, and based on how they did, they were rewarded certain things as well, right? We celebrate cybersecurity months with this cybersecurity awareness month where the CISO and CIO together provide state of the cybersecurity at the university. And it's a, it's an open event to faculty, staff, and students. Again, this goes back to the creating that culture of awareness and transparency. It begins with CIO and CISO, goes all the way to faculty, staff, and students, right? This is how we approach today's cybersecurity at Stevens Dave. And it has been very successful. It, it generates a lot of dialogue among the community. And the last one that uh, I should also add is through our student program, we also hire cybersecurity undergrad and grad students as well who work very closely on our CSOs team, right? Whether it's cybersecurity or physical security, because we monitor and manage both of those systems. And they help us improve some of those experience for, for, from their own experiences. They come and tell us this, this is working, this is not working. And we try to learn and adapt from them. So these four things I find that we have done it very well, that builds the culture that we talked about. Fabulous. I'm so happy to learn that you are providing students with hands-on experience by involving them in different cybersecurity projects. Duke University is another institution that does that. And I'm sure there are many others doing the same. You also talked about making available the various security tools for free. So there are no excuses. Excellent. Securing the student population can be a big challenge, and it's heartening to hear the many concrete steps you're taking to deal with this challenge. At this time, it might be a good idea to revisit this important aspect of securing an academic institution. So what steps do you all take to secure the student population as best as possible? Look, the majority of the breaches happen not through any highly sophisticated cyber attacks, right? It happens because of basic controls are lacking, some fundamentals, training haven't been provided, patch management, and, and what have you. So at the very minimum, uh, what we try to do is we regularly communicate with our student community. Uh, I have a CIO student advisory. Uh, so we also leverage uh, that advisory committee to make sure the word gets out about phishing, scam, right, uh, uh, password uh, uh, practices and, and, and all of that. But that creates a very good, aware community. So next time when these phishing attacks are happening, they know that these are not legit and they know how to report it, right? So that's the very low-hanging fruit for us, but it pays a high dividend, right? That's one thing. Second one is there are very specific controls that we take in, in the backend infrastructure side, right? Whether it's bringing a, a, a new device on our network, right? How do you authenticate that? Are we using two-step authentications, multi-factor authentication and all of that? Are they connecting to wide network or a wireless network and what have you. And we use very specific VLANs and taggings that takes place where if you know this individual is a user, we put them in a separate network environment 
where it's completely separate from from our day-to-day business operations, for example, right? The same concept applies for gaming consoles and IoT device. We have complete separate mechanism for onboarding and monitoring that kind of network. And those are some of the the the, the steps that we have taken that that we find that that's been working very well. And also remember, we want to make sure the user experience stays as is where they don't have to contact IT for every day. How do I connect my console versus how do I connect to your wireless network, right? So we also pay very close attention to find that balance between user experiences and maintaining the security. And, you know, that brings up a thought here. One of my previous guests, he talked about in his organization, which is also an academic institution, they created what is called a champion's network. And the champions network comprised of students, faculty, staff. And these were the folks who were enthusiastic about securing the institution, enthusiastic about enhancing awareness. And they would serve as ambassadors, liaisons, evangelists in their respective domains, areas. So, you know, to your point, it's not possible for you to have somebody from your unit embedded everywhere. You have to find a way of getting the word out by creating those ambassadors who can, who will serve the interests of your department, of your unit as well. So I thought that that structure of creating a champions network and rewarding them. Um, and again, rewards doesn't have to be expensive, but just the recognition uh, yeah. goes goes a long way. So I thought of just putting it out there. No, I think I think that's a fantastic way to engage with with. All, all the constituents within your organization. And we also benefit from being a technological university there. So we have a lot of awareness, generally speaking, and, and the students are, are sophisticated, technically sophisticated students, right? And they're demanding, they have expectations when they show, show up on campus. So we don't have a champion network like that, but I feel that the, the culture that we instill early on that's that's our champion. So it's a community effort. It's a team sport. So so everyone's part of this cybersecurity awareness campaign for us, and and they all play their 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 individual roles. And then the IT team and the the security team provides innovative, easy to use solution. Right, report a spam button, for example, in your Outlook. Right, that makes it easier. Right, how do you report some of the phishing attempts and all of that? So we have also created intuitive environment where they don't have to spend a lot of time to go through the hoops to report an incident, right? So we made it easy for them as well. So these are the things that probably could work, but the Champion Network is a fantastic idea. Fantastic. On a related note, I recall a discussion with the Chief Information Security Officer of another organization. He said that there is an expectation in his organization that members will help by diligently going through their emails and flagging the ones that deserve attention. I can totally see from where he's coming, there's no disagreement there, but it's also true that people are busy. They have to deal with so many things. So that becomes another chore for the user trying to diligently look through every email and identify the ones that are worth reporting. Where are you on this? What's your perspective? I think it's it's a very complex situation where 
how do we find uh, the the balance between being productive versus making sure we are contributing towards the cybersecurity, right? And I think that's where the it's important for the for the IT folks to to do a lot of things on the back end side before even the message arrives in the inbox, right? So for example, we use something called MailTip. I believe that's the right term. Pardon me, I'm not a CISO, for example. I'm an accidental CISO again. <laughs> but so we have enabled certain mechanism to our email platform. So if a message is coming in, it will say message from external sender or something that automatically alerts the user, right? The second thing is we have adjusted and continue to adjust our spam filtering, right? Where, where we have enabled a lot of built-in encryptions or, or DLP or data loss prevention type of uh, policies up front at that level as well. And, and we continue to partner with our vendors to make sure that we remain up to date in terms of those signatures and all of that. So there are a lot of things we do also in the back end to mitigate this particular risk and still be able to manage the expectations of users. But again, if you, you, you're so right, 90% of the emails that you get, it's either spam, uh, sales call or marketing emails. Only 10% or less than of 10% are, 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 are legit emails that you, you will read, open, open read and respond to. You make a lot of sense when you say that it's important to do that work at the back end. Use relevant tools to automate the filtering process. Through such process automation, one can take the load off the user, freeing them up to focus on their core expertise. Reminds me of a discussion that I was having with the CISO of another academic institution. When I asked him what were some principles that guided his day-to-day -day activities, he said something very interesting. He said, Dave, we are not in the business of saying no. The first thing that I always think about is that the job of security is not to stop the institution from doing what they are formed to do. The job of security is to enable those functions, those activities. And that stayed with me, a very compelling statement. You also emphasized the importance of creating a culture of enablement, where the role of the CISO is recognized to be much more than just a security officer. They are strategic enablers, business enablers. And that's exactly how the CISO role needs to be perceived and operationalized. CIOs and CISOs must have a seat at the table when strategic decisions are being made. They can provide valuable feedback on how technology can be an enabler, on the security implications of the proposed strategic initiatives. So treating the CIO, the CISO, as strategic partners, as opposed to seeing those functions, IT and information security, as hurdles or stumbling blocks can go a long way in creating and sustaining a high-performance information security culture. You're so spot on on that observation, Dave. And as I said earlier, it's about building and fostering that trust and relationships, right, that, that allows 
the community to come together and have this type of conversation and discussions that will enable folks, right, to make sure that they provide a solid, secure, a robust environment for them to flourish. Awesome. Awesome. Well, like you said, we can have this discussion forever. Yeah. But we don't want to go too long. Uh, for the sake of the listeners, we want to keep it short and sweet. So as we wrap up this session, I want you to, of course, you know, talk about anything you want, but also think about anything that you'd like to share from the standpoint of how organizations should prepare for cyber attacks and what does it take to effectively execute plans on a sustained manner? As you know, we have plans. We're always planning, strategizing, but everybody is not good at executing when the time comes. Mm -hmm. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll let you take over from here. I think that's, uh, that's a really, really great question, Dave, you know, and I think we can write a dissertation paper on that together, actually, when you specifically talk about <laughs> operational excellence and, and, and change management, right? But I, let me, let me take a, a, a different approach to answer this question, right? Absolutely. Uh, let's look at it from a strategic side and then from an operational side, right? From, from a strategic perspective, right? I think the organization must spend sufficient time, effort, and resources to build a security-centric culture, right? They need to look at security from business lenses, period. They must be involved at a top level, whether it's board or CEO for, for a corporate or president at a higher level, right? They need to implement frameworks and, and architectures, right, that are well aligned with particular business needs, and more importantly, I'll take it to the next level where it must be aligned with cloud smart initiatives, right? Those are certain things I would look at it from a strategic perspective. And the last one I would add is find the talent that will help you achieve what I'm about to talk about next, right? So that's from, from more of a strategic perspective. And in that, you will have a cybersecurity program that, that you will work with, engage with the community to, to come up with a program that addresses certain things, right? And this is something from my own learning from Protect Stevens and the IAM program that we launched, right? Implement solid plans for training and phishing awareness. Implement some controls for endpoint device management. That's a big challenge. I didn't talk about that earlier on, Dave. Every faculty, staff, students have multiple devices, grant issued, personal, what have you. Have a solid 24-7 SOC center monitoring that allows you that extended uh, detection and, and, and response that you need, right? We talked a little bit about network segmentations and then make sure that there are certain things that, that we, we want to also focus on within that, that program is make sure you have a return incident response plan, right? This is more operational, but it's needed. Right. Make sure you, you, you draft confidentially agreements for employees, vendors and visitors. Many folks still don't pay close attention to visitors. And this goes back to like, you know, having low hanging fruit and, and attack surfaces. Right. Regularly perform data discovery and privacy, privacy reviews for risk assessment. Right. We perform at least two penetration testing 
We also include social engineering aspect of it. So make sure we do that. And the, and and one last topic is review your onboarding and awkwarding processes. So important, so critical. And for all the folks who are listening from an IT perspective, adopt these four basic practices. If we can do all of that for for financial resources or or otherwise, make sure you have a solid password management practices. Implement multi-factor authentication. Provide solid user awareness training and timely update systems. I hope it covers your question, Dave. Oh, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, You know, there's a reason why you do what you do and you do it so well. I think you addressed it brilliantly. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about the vastness of the attack surfaces and the various ways that these surfaces can be compromised. For lack of a better word, organizations, individuals are sitting ducks. That means despite your best efforts, there could still be a loophole that somebody could find and drive right through. Mm -hmm. But having said that, just like you said, you have to do the basics right, do the fundamentals right. I'm sure you might agree that there's also some wisdom in prioritizing what you want to secure at what level, because it's impossible to secure everything. So you have to prioritize and then focus your security strategy, your defense in depth strategy accordingly. So this way, it's a more of a manageable, feasible kind of a plan. And finally, from my standpoint, finally, I'm a big fan of make sure that you work closely with with legal because the unfortunate consequences often result in the courtroom where you're having you're being sued and you're having to defend yourself. So make sure you are totally familiar with the laws, the regulations, the standards, yeah. and you are in compliance so that when unfortunate events happen and when you have to present how you have been governing, managing security, you look good out there that you did your best and despite your best efforts, things went wrong as opposed to it was sloppy or it was negligent, which is something I'm sure everybody would like to avoid. But no, but again, I'd like to give you the final word. So please. No, absolutely. I think, I think you're so spot on that. And I would take it to a further as well, right? The, the incident response plan that I, I briefly touched upon, that should also include your cyber insurance provider as well, right? And they will bring in all the legal helps. And and because different states have different regulations nowadays in terms of, of what you report and what you don't, right? But I think someone recently shared some statistics about cyber attacks, right? I think it was something around like it happens every 39 seconds. The ransomware attacks are targeted every 14 seconds. And only 10% gets reported, right? And and to make it even this this whole cybersecurity economy, they're expecting it will grow to $10 trillion by 2025, right? I mean, this is fascinating numbers. Like, you know, how do you keep up with all of this, Dave? So again, you have to go back to the basics, do the basics right, make sure you're transparent, Make sure you, you find good people on your team who are stewards of, of good security hygiene and, 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 and do your, your best efforts on a, on a daily basis, right? Fantastic. Well, with that, we'll conclude our discussion for today. Thanks again, Tej, for the wonderful insights. I so appreciate it. I know listeners are also very grateful. Dave, thanks for having me, and uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks again. A special thanks to Tej Patel 
for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.